<laughs> Sorry. It'll be fun. You guys should have it better than second service, though, I think. <clears throat> so uh, I actually am really, really excited about what we're going to talk about this morning. We're starting a new series, uh, even though I'm going to start with kind of a downer intro. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews for the next 12 weeks, but I want to start us preparing our hearts for what we're going to encounter by reminding you of a story you can read on your own in John's gospel, in John chapter 6. I don't remember how long ago it was. I mean, maybe 15, maybe 20 years ago, but I remember reading through the gospel of John one of the first three or four times I read through the gospel. And I remember getting to John chapter 6, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I didn't like the story. It was, it was a little shocking, a little unsettling. I didn't know how to understand it. I didn't like it. I don't know what John put. What, what, what are you doing putting that in there, John? Um, so the story is Jesus is teaching, and he's, he's, he's become relatively famous. He's become popular, and he's gathered a pretty large crowd around him. And he begins to teach, and he's getting deeper into this understanding of who he is and his unique relationship to the Father and how much he's at the center of this new thing he's doing and he gives this teaching, and a lot of people find it too hard. It's a little too hard for them. They don't like what he's saying, and they start to leave. That's the part I didn't like. I didn't like reading through a gospel and finding people walking away from Jesus. They were walking away, and in the end of John chapter 6, Jesus looks at the 12. Are you going to leave too? Are you leaving too? And Peter says, and I love this, John 6, 68, to whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter essentially says, I've, I've thought about the alternatives, Jesus, and there's no one like you. If we walk away from you, what else do we walk to? There's nothing else out there like you. And if you can understand that story, and a bit of what Peter is experiencing in that moment, you're going to start to get where the author of Hebrews wants you to get. <laughs> That's essentially the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. That those receiving, and we'll talk about it, but those receiving the letter are in what we would call a crisis of faith. And what are they going to do? And the author of Hebrews is writing this letter with deep pastoral care to say, where else will you go? <laughs> Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. So we're going to spend 12 weeks, and this is interesting because we're only going to do four verses today because I want to introduce the series. I got to do a little more background this morning. Hebrews is 13 chapters long, and we're going to do it in 12 weeks. So that's awesome, right? Uh, we're going to fly through it. But there is a sense, and you'll see as we go through this, if you've been around the church for a while, there's a lot of famous verses. You're gonna be, I know that verse. I know that verse. I didn't know that was in Hebrews. <laughs> a lot of famous verses. But I have a feeling, if you're like most people, Hebrews is in the back of the New Testament, wasn't written by Paul. We don't study it as much. You don't really understand the flow of the argument. So if you're brand new to church, you're probably where most of us are. <laughs> We, we know this book's in the Bible, but we don't really know too much what the big argument is. So we're going to, in 12 weeks, we'll cover 13 chapters. But I want you to get a sense of the flow of the argument. 
As I said, you'll see out of the gate, the author does not identify themselves in the letter. So there is no, I mean, really, people only have guesses. The three dominant guesses on who wrote it, there's reasons why we're pretty sure Paul didn't write it. And maybe I'll point it out as we go through. There's things that the author says that it's like Paul would not have said that. Um, but the, the guesses have included, and all, if you don't know these people, join Rick Birchill in a Sunday school class. They're all people in Acts. Some people think it was Apollos. That's a very common guess. Some people think Barnabas. And some people even think it was Priscilla, actually. Priscilla and Aquila. Those are guesses. But other guesses include Silas, Philip, Timothy, Jude. And at least one, a couple people think it might have been Mary, the mother of Jesus, working with Luke and John, right? So and all that to say, we have no idea who wrote the letter. That's what we, we don't know. So I will probably primarily refer to the author as the pastor. This is probably the letter. Actually, you'll see as we go through it is almost more a sermon than it is an epistle or a letter. So we don't know who wrote the letter, but we have a pretty good idea who it was written to. It was likely written to, and maybe I'll point this out as we read through why we think these things, but it was likely written to Roman Christians around the time, somewhere between maybe 60, 61, 62, 63. So it's a group of believers. It's, you know, Rome was house churches. You've got uh, a very Jewish collection of Christians. I mean, wouldn't have probably even thought of themselves in the 60s as changing religions. They were just living out the fulfillment. The Messiah had come. There's probably some Gentiles in the church too, but a lot is to the Hebrews, <laughs> a very Jewish community. Uh, they'd been following for a while, but, and we could even say it this way, because this is part of the crisis. They started out and it was awesome. Maybe you can relate. That's what, I, as we go through this, I want, I want you to understand their story, but I want you to find ways to connect. It started out with a lot of joy and a lot of excitement, but now things have gotten really, really hard. Really hard. In fact, so hard that they're wondering, can we just go back to Judaism as we knew it before Jesus? That's kind of the crisis that they're facing. Uh, we know they're experiencing persecution, probably some physical persecution. Certainly, they're probably losing money and job opportunities because of their faith in Jesus. They're being ostracized in their communities, but it hasn't quite led to martyrdom. We'll see that again as we get later into the letter. Uh, so because of that, because martyrdom breaks out really under Nero, he kind of starts out good as an emperor and then he goes crazy. That's why we date it to the early to mid-60s because there's real persecution going on. And these believers are asking questions. Is, where's Jesus? What's he doing? Is this worth it? And I'm not going to go too much into the structure of the letter today. We'll work our way through it as we go through our series here. But here's what I do want to say to you. Uh, you're kind of going to have two streams, and this is why it feels like a sermon. You're going to have a stream of exposition, which will begin today in the first four verses. And you, you see our, our title here, Jesus is Greater. 
Jesus is better. That's the mathematical symbol, greater than. Some of you know I have deep math roots, and I still love it. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. And we're going to be introduced to the very beginning of that. But as we read through the letter, this exposition is going to grow and grow and build and build. And the author of Hebrews is going to tell us things that no one else in the New Testament tells us, particularly around the high priesthood of Jesus and some with the sacrificial system. So that exposition is one major theme that's going to run through the letter. But through the exposition, the pastor, the author is going to stop and pause and give us deep exhortation. And he's, he's brilliant. He's going to do it in a lot of creative ways. There's going to be a lot of encouragement. Some of those famous verses, just fix your eyes on Jesus, right? Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. A lot of encouragement in ways to help us not, not lose sight, to persevere, to endure through the end, to, to endure this crisis of faith. But there's also going to be some challenge and some really, really intense warning. A whole variety of ways that the author, the pastor, who is deeply concerned that these churches will make it and be healthy. So you're going to have a stream of exposition that builds and builds and builds. And then throughout, you're going to have a stream of exhortation that's pretty repetitive, just reiterating the same idea that Peter said, Lord, to who else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So let's jump in. Let's do the first four verses. Uh, and some of you like to memorize Scripture. These four verses are worth memorizing. I mean, you want a little homework assignment over the next week or two, you could do this. You could memorize these four verses, and you will be uh, on a great journey of some amazing Christology, who Jesus is. Because the author, so the author doesn't introduce himself at the beginning or say anything. He just begins with these first four verses. Because, and you'll, as we go through the letter, you'll see this. For the author, the author's understanding is if you and I, if, if those of us hearing this letter can understand who Jesus is and what he's done, we'll be fine. We will endure any crisis of faith if we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I mean, that's going to echo all the way through. It's all, Jesus is so amazing. There's no one like us. Where else? No one else like him. Where else would we go, right? So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago... And he's talking about the Old Testament here. So again, this, the, the letter feels like a sermon. He's going to quote Old Testament passages, mostly the Psalms. We'll come back to that idea. But he's going to quote Old Testament passages. And then this is how it points to Jesus, how Jesus fulfills it. This is what Jesus has done. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. I mean, the, the author of Hebrews knows how to read the Old Testament. We're going to actually learn some things about how to read the Old Testament from the author of Hebrews. And then it says this in verse 2, And now in these final days he has spoken to us through his Son. <laughs> so God has done something new. And, and the Father speaking is going to be, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that more even in the way the author of Hebrews presents scripture, the Old Testament to us in this letter is different than how Paul does it, <laughs> different than what you might be familiar. Instead of saying scripture says, God says, <laughs> is how Hebrews handles it. So, so God has spoken in the past in a variety of ways, but now he's spoken through his son. And it says the final days, that always catches people's attention. What does that mean? As we journey through this, we're going to have to, we're going to have to get ourselves into a little bit of a Jewish worldview, which, which will be good for your Bible reading. 
But the final days for the Jewish people began, you can think about it this way, the final days began when the Messiah came. So because the Messiah has come, we are all now living in the final days. And that's even interesting to think through, and I'm going to come back to this at the end of our sermon, but but, but we use the phrase, the final days, and it feels like an ending, doesn't it? It feels like the story should have ended back in the early 60s when the author of Hebrews says these are the final days, but it was just a new beginning. <laughs> it was a new beginning. Sometimes, and we'll come back to this, sometimes we come to what we think is the end, but the end is the beginning. And now there's a new beginning that is without end. I mean, that's, in a sense, the way the Jews understood what was going to happen. The, the beginning of the end was with the coming of the Messiah. And then, you know, we actually still kind of see that as a next iteration, as Jesus will come again and launch the beginning of the end again, right? So it's, this is how the biblical authors understand things. But let's read through then. There's eight things that the author of Hebrews is going to say at the beginning to catch your attention. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Understand who he is. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. We'll talk about that. And through the Son, he created the universe. Verse 3, the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command or his word. When he had cleansed us from our sins, the purification of our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows us that the sun is far greater, right? The sun is better than the angels. This is going to launch us into next week, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. So I want to walk through these eight things just so you see them. Maybe if you do take the time to memorize these verses, you'll, you'll understand a little bit more what it is the author is saying. The first thing he says is God has appointed him as heir of all things. Now, heirs were incredibly important in the ancient world, in the Jewish world. So much revolved around the preservation of your family for so many reasons. And the oldest son would usually become the heir of the family. If you were in our discipleship pathway back in the fall, this, we looked at this theme of the firstborn, <laughs> the one who was the heir. It was the oldest sons, the firstborn, the heir's responsibility to take care of the family. The pastor, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one who inherits the kingdom. The whole world is his kingdom, and he is responsible for you. And then it says, through whom, the second thing, through whom he made the universe. So you got this kind of bracket on this story of humanity, of reality. Jesus is at the beginning. He creates everything. And then he's at the end. He's the heir of all things. And so maybe an easier way to say it is how they say it in the book of Revelation. John says it in Revelation. Jesus is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. The author of Hebrews says he's the creator of all things and he's the heir of all things. The third thing he says, which we don't have to spend much time on. Uh, we just talked about this Christmas Eve morning. You can go listen to that sermon if you want. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. 
leaning into what we looked at in our last series, this unique relationship between the Son and the Father, and this phrase that sometimes gets used about the glory that dwelt in the temple, (laughs) the Shekinah glory. The author of Hebrews is saying what we said Christmas Eve morning, Jesus is that glory. Jesus is the glory of God. The next thing, the fourth thing is that he is the exact expression of his nature or his character. One author says it this way, God had for a long time been sending advanced sketches of himself to his people, but now in his son, he's given us his exact portraits. Or maybe we could go a step further and say God had been giving us drawings of himself, but now he's stepped out of the, he stepped out of the portrait altogether, and now he's among us. He's with us. God is here. We see his ex- exact representation of his character, of his nature in the Son. Jesus sustains all things by his command, his powerful word. In the book of Hebrews, The word of God is creative, it's powerful, it sets things in motion, it accomplishes things. It's able to actively reach down inside of us. And the Son is upholding all things by his powerful word. You could say it this way, the Father is bringing the whole world to its desired end through the Son, Jesus Christ. His word is powerful. We're going to talk about who Jesus is as we go through this book, but we're also going to talk about what, he, what he's done for us. And here at the beginning, we're told he, he's made purification of our sins. He's cleansed us of our sins. So we're going to talk about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and try to understand how the author of Hebrews understands what it means that Jesus was a sacrifice for our sins. How does that purify us? How does that cleanse us? How do we have this assurance of forgiveness? The author will help us understand that as we journey through the letter. And then we get an allusion to Psalm 110 that he has ascended and the Son is now seated at the right hand of the Father in power, interceding for us. I told you the book that's going to be quoted probably the most throughout the letter is the book of Psalms. I think there's reasons for it, lots of reasons for it, actually. And the psalm that is alluded to or quoted the most is Psalm 110. It's a really short psalm. If you haven't read it for a while, you can read it. It's just a couple verses. It won't even take you a whole minute probably to read Psalm 110. But it's a really, really important psalm, and Jesus himself quotes it about himself in the Gospels. Really important. He's been ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then this theme that will echo all the way through the letter, Jesus is greater. We'll start with him being greater than the angels. Jesus is better. But, but there's no alternatives. You can't go back. Once you've encountered Jesus, who else will you go to? Because this whole story has always been about Jesus. <laughs> and he alone has the words of eternal life. That's where this letter is going to take us. So for a few minutes, again, to get us in the right kind of mind, how do we, because we aren't, we aren't first century Jews living in Rome, facing persecution that isn't quite martyrdom, but will soon be. (laughs) 
So what should we be listening for? How, how should we hear these reiterations of exhortation that we're going to hear again and again and again and again that, that Jesus is better and, and there's nowhere else to go and, and you, you got to persevere and endure to the end. Hang in there. Well, this is the part that actually struck me. I, I had wanted to do this letter both because I think it'll be interesting to see how the author of Hebrews understands Old Testament uh, and how it points to Jesus, but also I just love the, the theme, Jesus is better. But this week, in and of itself, as I was getting deeper and deeper into what is going to unfold in this letter, I was struck by how timely it felt to me. I mean, I was just thinking about how difficult and disillusioning the world is right now. And people I know personally, and stories I've read online of people who have found themselves in a place in their faith that feels like a dead end. I'm not saying this will happen to you. I hope it doesn't happen to you, but it may. It may have already happened to you, or it may happen to you in the not-too-distant future. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place that feels like a dead end. And sometimes, this is the good news I have for you, sometimes what feels like a dead end is really a new beginning. A new beginning. I mean, there's a sense that the heart of the letter of Hebrews is that the pastor is saying to the churches, I know things are getting harder. And I know you have more questions than you had a year ago, and you have new questions. And some of you are in a crisis of faith. Is this it? Is it over? Have I reached the end? Is this as far as I go? And the author of, the author of Hebrews wants you to hear him say, hang in there. Persevere, keep your eyes on Jesus. Where else will you go? He alone has the words of eternal life. Now let me pause and help you think a little bit about what may cause a crisis of faith. I mean, some of the things that have been happening that have felt even unique to me in the last five years. It's just, I'll just share a little bit of my story, but I have a feeling that you'll be able to relate in your own ways. Uh, when I was in college, there was a prominent Christian author who was trying to teach college, like 20 years ago, trying to teach college students how to date like Jesus would date or whatever. I don't even know what that means, right? But he wrote these books on how Christians should date, and they were very influential. And a lot of people, you know, you got these guys and girls together in college, and we like each other, and we want to date, but how should we do it? And oh, well, this guy says this, and this guy says that. Very prominent. And so a lot of people followed his teachings because they were trying to do what would honor Jesus. And in the last five years, he's renounced his faith. That can cause a crisis of faith for people. Well, I was following this guy. He doesn't even believe anymore. What does that mean for me? Or on a more personal level for me, there's a, a prominent Christian author, teacher, leader. He's passed away. Very, very influential in my journey. Helped me wrestle through all kinds of apologetic questions and locked my eyes in on Jesus. I bought pretty much every book he wrote. I would have considered him one of the greatest teachers I'd ever heard. I met him. He was friends with a pastor at a church I worked with. He came and did a conference. I thought this guy was amazing. But near the end of his life, some stuff started to come out. Turns out he was living a double life 
and had some really, really ugly, immoral things told about him. That can cause a crisis of faith. I have followed this guy. I've learned so much, and all of a sudden, I don't even know if he's an imposter or not. Now, those are two examples from my story. You may have your own story. You may have been listening to a podcast. There's podcasts out there of somebody who's walked away from their faith, and they re- oh, wow, I never thought about that. And this podcast has gotten your attention. You may have had stuff resurface from your past. Or maybe you've understood you have health problems you never wanted. You didn't ask for these things. Or maybe you've just, I don't know, visited Auschwitz and did become aware of of the problem of evil in a new way, and it's shaken you. You're experiencing suffering and pain and trials, and, and it's making you wonder, do I want to follow Jesus? You're thrown into a crisis of faith. What do you do? Again, the author of Hebrews wants you to know that you can pass through the dark night of crisis and into the sun-drenched lands of a reborn faith. Your water can become wine. Keep your eyes on Jesus. (laughs) But you need to hear that message as you journey through. Or maybe you're journeying with somebody who's journeying through. So here are three things that I want to share this morning, and we'll talk more and more and more. How do we endure? when we encounter seasons like this. I have just three things this morning. The first will be pretty quick, but this is what I want to say. If you are experiencing doubts or have some kind of crisis of faith, don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. The reason the whole book of Hebrews exists is because brothers and sisters in Christ were also having a crisis of faith. And they had doubts. So you're not the first Christian. I mean, let's not get too full of ourselves. You're not the first Christian to wrestle with doubts or have questions. And we'll talk about faith. I mean, one of the closest actual sentence definitions we get to, most of faith is just described in the Bible. But one of the closest definitions we get is in Hebrews 11. We'll talk about faith, and there's a real... I mean, if you think about it, for faith to be a possibility, doubt also has to be a possibility. So don't be afraid or ashamed if you experience some doubt. And can, I, can, can you hear me say this? It is possible to doubt your way into a better, stronger, and more beautiful faith. I've seen it happen. You don't have to be afraid of questions and doubt. The second thing I want to do is introduce a metaphor that I'm probably going to return to and expand. I think it'll be helpful as we dive into Hebrews deeper. But let me say it this way. I want you to keep in mind that your theological house isn't Jesus. And I'll try to help you understand what I mean by this, but we all have a theological house. We, I mean, probably from the moment we begin to think about who the God of creation is, we start in our minds building a theological house with many, many rooms for how we understand who God is. And what the author of Hebrews is going to say throughout this letter, you can see how he already started, is that at the center of our lives is not a religion, 
It's not a book. It's not a philosophy. It's not a theology. It's a person. The crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Do not confuse your theological house with the person of Jesus. In fact, what you're going to need to do is as you grow in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for you on the cross, as you grow in understanding that, you are probably going to need to remodel your house a little bit. And sometimes they use language like you're going to need to unlearn some things you've learned and learn some new things in light of Jesus, but that's a normal process of discipleship. As we go through Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is going to be writing to these churches and saying, look, you've got a whole wing in your house on angels. I need you to rethink angels. You got a whole wing on Moses. You got a whole thought pattern or system. You got, you got several rooms on the sacrificial system and these descendants of Levi and the priests that come from Levi. You need to remodel those rooms. You need to rethink all of that in light of Jesus because, because he's come. We're in the final days. The Messiah has come. This was all about Jesus from the beginning. We need to rethink them. We need to remodel our theological house in light of Jesus. We need some humility. And the reason I say it this way is because I've, I've listened to and read some stories from what are now called the what? The de-churched, right? It's like a new word in the last five years, the de-churched. I've read some stories, and oftentimes I feel like those who identify as the de-churched are those who have begun to confuse their theological house with Jesus. And so they find something amiss in one of their rooms that needs to be remodeled, and they just chuck the whole thing. It's just too tightly bound together. There's no flexibility. There's almost no humility to say, maybe I need to unlearn this and learn something new. Because I know who Jesus is, where else would I go? Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. But I, maybe I picked up some stuff that wasn't the right way of thinking. So we'll see what the author of Hebrews has to say, but then we'll try to relate it to where we are in 2024. But don't confuse your theological house with Jesus. Don't make your theological house too rigid and not flexible. Because what will happen, the other way of saying this is you need to beware of the pendulum. Don't, don't realize that you've, you have to rethink something about angels or Moses or the priests of Levi and then just bring a wrecking ball to the whole house. You're in a Christian church that is worshiping Jesus. You know a lot of things. You got a lot of things right. Just because one or two rooms might need to be remodeled doesn't mean the whole thing has to come down. Beware of the pendulum swing and be patient. Because you can't move out of your theological house. And you know as well as I do, remodeling while you live in the house takes so much longer. <laughs> when Kami and I bought our first house, we're in our second house now. Our second house needed some remodeling. Our first house, which I think is normal, needed a lot of remodeling. And I don't know, there was about a month, a month and a half that our apartment lease wasn't up before we could move into our, our, we bought the house, but we had an overlap, right? But that month and a half, we got so much remodeling done because nobody was in the house. But then we moved in, we still had more remodeling to do, and that took forever. So what I want to say is be patient. You're not going to remodel in two weeks. Don't, don't listen to one podcast and change everything, right? No, you, you can begin to have conversations. with. This is a really good community of Jesus followers. Begin to have conversations. Raise questions. Look for answers, but be patient. Be patient. 
If you're walking with somebody who you feel like is having a crisis of faith, encourage them to be patient. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't lose Jesus while you're remodeling. And the last thing I'll say, and then we'll head into communion, is when you can't pray, at least say your prayers. I mean, if you're in a crisis of faith, sometimes it's hard to pray at least say your prayers. What do I mean by that? What does that have to do with Hebrews? Well, what you're going to see is Hebrews, I mean, Psalms again and again and again. And one of the scholars that I was, these Hebrew scholars that I was listening to was talking about how central the Psalms are to this whole book. And, and he even said Hebrews 5 is an invitation for the readers to use the Psalms for their own suffering. We're going to learn from Jesus. Jesus prayed his prayers. He prayed the Psalms. We should learn to do that too. Uh, I'm going to invite you, actually. I've talked to three people in our church who kind of challenged me to do this in a way. I'm going to do a prayer school. I'm going to do prayer school. I, I was going to do formed, but I, some of you heard I'm going to Rwanda, and I'm going to be gone for two Wednesdays, and we have Ash Wednesday, and I was trying to figure out how to break up formed. So instead, I'm going to do prayer school for three weeks, and then I'm going to be gone for a little bit, and then we're going to do formed when I get back. But I want to talk a little bit about prayer school. What do I mean when I say, when you can't pray, at least say your prayers? Uh, if you don't, I mean, come to prayer school, and I'll, and I'll explain this a bit more. And usually when I do prayer school, I only do it in one night. We're going to do it in three nights, which will give us a little bit more time. But here's one of the things that I learned. I wasn't really discipled in how to pray very well. And, and here's how as I use this theological house as a metaphor I had an interior decorator in a lot of my rooms called American consumerism. <laughs> and what that means is that little interior decorator in, impacted a lot of the ways that I approached God, particularly how I prayed. And I prayed, and I thought I was praying good, but I, I, I mean, authentically praying, but I still prayed with my desires at the center of my prayer life and my feelings. And if I felt like praying, I prayed longer. And if I didn't feel like praying, I wouldn't pray that much. And I was always telling God what I wanted and what I wanted him to do for me and how I saw things and what he should be doing, right? But you know what I learned at prayer school really is where I began to learn this. If you pray with your desires and your feelings at the center of your prayer life, you won't change at all. There's no redemptive transformation when your desires and your feelings, which every voice outside of church is telling you your desires and your feelings are the most important thing. <laughs> I don't think so. Jesus is the most important thing, and I've learned how to pray with Jesus at the center. And I think it's changing me. I think Jesus is rubbing shoulders with Jesus changes you. So I want to invite you. We, we, I mean, we... We, we read these eight incredible things about who Jesus is and what makes him unique. Well, well come, learn. Come, come learn a way to pray. It's not the only way to pray, but it's how I pray, and it's been transformational for me. Come join us at prayer school. When you can't pray, at least say your prayers. Learn some prayers. I pray the Psalms. I pray several Psalms daily. I pray the Lord's Prayer daily. When you can't pray, say your prayers. Jesus prayed his prayers. What I want to do now is I'm going to end with a prayer. It's a really basic prayer. I think it can meet anybody in this room who is seeking Jesus. It can be a transformational prayer for any of us. If it's the first time you ever pray like this to Jesus, uh, then you may have just entered into his kingdom. <laughs> 
But I want to pray this prayer with us together, uh, and then we'll move forward with communion. If you would bow your heads, you don't have to, again, if you're visiting and that makes you uncomfortable, but I invite you to bow your heads and kind of center your heart and your mind on Jesus. And we pray this to you, Jesus. We believe in you. Even if we don't know exactly what that means or what that's going to look like on the other side of what we're walking through. Uh, Some of us are in a bit of a crisis and we've been hurt and we're confused and we're disoriented. (laughs) And there are a lot of rooms that we used to, to sit in and now, I don't know, they feel ugly or embarrassing. What we know, Jesus, is we're confused about some things, but we aren't confused about you. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus, we believe that you are Savior. You have saved us from our sin. You are the Lord of all creation. You are the beginning and the end, the glory of God. (laughs) And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to, in a sense, be our contractor. Would you guide us? Would you help us remodel our house? We know we believe in Jesus, and we want to know him more. We want to keep Jesus at the center, and we need your help. Would you do that for us? In your name we pray, amen.